Now this evening, our service is going to be a little bit different. Tonight, we're going to look in detail at what Jesus went through on the night that he was crucified. This evening's teaching isn't going to be the normal celebration, uplifting message, because what Jesus went through was horrible. He endured torture after torture, disgrace upon disgrace, and he was left to die nailed to a wooden cross. And he did it willingly. He knew what he was in for. He knew it was, was coming, and he was willing to pay the price for sins he didn't commit. He did it solely so we would have a chance to be forgiven and to live forever in heaven with him. Now, if you remember the story, after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was given a quick impromptu trial with the, the Jewish leaders. They Then they handed him over to the local Roman ruler, a, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, where he was given another quick trial, and he was sentenced to death. With his death now mere hours away is where we're going to pick up the story. And we're going to pick it up right where Jesus is led away from Pontius Pilate. We're going to start at Matthew 27. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. Everything's going to be on the screen above me. Matthew 27, verse 27. This is what it tells us. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Now, the praetorium is an open area within the governor's estate. So after Jesus was sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, he was led to an area right outside there. Basically, it's an open courtyard. That's what it was. And while standing in the courtyard, the text tells us the whole company of Roman soldiers, they gathered around him. Now, normally, just a few soldiers, two, three, maybe four most, would normally be used to guard someone, to guard a prisoner. But this day was not a normal day. Everything about this prisoner was different. But interestingly, Jesus was no threat to them. He was not a flight risk. There was no army outside the city walls waiting to come and rescue him. During his trial, he didn't even try to defend himself. His own band of followers abandoned him. One of them turned him in. And yet we have this large company of soldiers there. So they weren't there to prevent him from escaping. No, this company of soldiers gathered around him for one purpose in this enclosed area, and that was to intimidate him and to torture him. They were going to take their time. This wasn't going to be quick. It wasn't going to be small stuff. This was going to be long, and it was going to be bloody. In Matthew 27, verses 28 to 30, it says, They stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they, they knelt in front of him, and they started to mock him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spit on him, and they took the staff, and they struck him on the head again, again, and again. So again, the text tells us they stripped him naked, and then they put a robe on him. They did this publicly in this courtyard to humiliate him. And to further humiliate him, they put a fake robe on him. And they made a crown of thorns. And the text says they set it on his head. They didn't set it on, like it was a nice cup of tea. They set it on the table. They would have jammed it down onto his head. And as he was standing there bleeding from the scalp, they began to mock him and laugh at him and call him names. And they took this, this staff it was a pretend staff like a king would hold. They put it in his hand and they were mocking him. And then they took, him out, took the staff out of his hand and they beat him over the head with it repeatedly where he was already wearing the crown of thorns. 
Remember, there wasn't one or two soldiers. There was likely several dozen, maybe even a hundred, and they would have taken turns doing this. Over and over, over and over, they hit him, they laughed at him, they spit on him. And they hit him over the head to drive the thorns in deep. During his time, Jesus was also whipped severely. Now, the whip they used wasn't, doesn't just have strips of leather on. The, the leather had little bits of iron on the end of it, little hooks. And it would hit him. They would rip it back, and it would just it would pull off chunks. Let's go to verse 31. After they mocked him, they took off the robe. They put on his, own, his clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So after they all had a chance to hit him as hard as they could and as much as they wanted, they all had their turn, they stripped him naked again, publicly. This time they put his own clothes on him and they led him away. Now we should point out here that the soldiers were only commanded to take him out of the city to crucify him. Everything that was happening now when they gathered around him was for their own pleasure. They weren't commanded to do that. And as they were led out of the city, they forced him to carry his own cross. Now we need to get a mental picture of what this would have been like. The skin on his back and shoulders would have been shredded. It would have been bleeding profusely. Now, if you've ever had a bad sunburn and you touch it, it hurts quite a bit, right? Imagine that, and then they take a large wooden beam and put it right on top of your back, and then they force you to carry that out. So whatever pain he was feeling was now far worse. Verses 32 and 33, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So Simon of Cyrene, was, uh, he was likely a visitor to the city of Jerusalem, and he'd probably come to celebrate Passover. And Cyrene was a city in Africa. It was about 800 miles away. That is a long way to travel without a car. <laughs> now, we don't know what he knew about Jesus, if he'd heard of him or if he was a complete stranger, but at this moment, he's one of the few people in the world that stood face-to-face with Jesus Christ. He would have seen the torture, the agony in his eyes. And this time it's obvious Jesus is too weak from the, probably the blood loss. He can no longer carry that wooden beam. The scholars estimate the beam probably weighed about 70 pounds, so a grown, healthy man, that would have been quite doable. But after a couple of hours of torture, he could, Jesus could barely carry his own weight. So the Roman soldiers, they pick Simon out of the crowd, and they put the sol- the cross the beam on his back. Now, the reason Simon was probably picked out and chosen is because he was a foreigner. He would have looked a little different, dressed a little different, maybe talked a bit different. So as a foreigner, he would have been easy to just grab out of the crowd and make him do this. Verse 34 tells us that once they arrived at Golgotha, it says, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused it. So here, it's just a moment where Jesus is kind of shown almost a hint of compassion, a bit of mercy in a way, but he refuses it. The offer of sour wine was meant to wet his mouth, and if he's able to get enough of it, supposedly it would, might lessen his pain. Um, but considering his wounds, I doubt it would make any difference. You know, I've worked in the hospital in the ER for years, and some with severe injuries, we usually use morphine or fentanyl, something heavy, and a lot of times, depending on the injuries, that just takes the edge off of it. So I seriously doubt would have done anything but simply wet his mouth. But regardless, Jesus refuses it. He refuses it. Any attempt to lessen his pain, make him more comfortable in any form, he refused. Why would he do that? Any normal person would want their pain decreased, even by a pinch, but not Jesus. 
The reason he refused any comfort or any decrease in his pain is because he was sent to pay the full price for our sins. That's it. The full weight, the full crushing power, everything. And any attempt to decrease that or minimize it, he would not participate in. Verses 35 to 37 tell us, when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, a number of years back, I was able to go to uh, Jerusalem, and on one part of the tour, they let us out on the path, that part of the area was excavated, that Jesus would have actually walked on on his way to being crucified. And along the way, there were paved stones, and there was actually one, there's a diagram, there's some stuff carved into one of the stones. And the tour guide said this was likely the game the Roman soldiers would have played. So I actually took a picture of it. So if we can look at that next. If you look closely, there is a diagram here and here. So there was a real game. There was a, I, I forgot the name, and I've tried to look it up, and I can't find it, but that was what they actually think was done. That was actually there when Jesus was crucified. Now the text, the text tells us that Jesus, he was nailed to the cross through his hands and through his feet and then the cross would have been raised to a standing position and he simply would have been hung there until he died. The soldiers put a sign above his head and this is what it says. Have you ever seen a cross and it says Enri? It's actually Latin. It's Iesus Nazarenus Rex Eudorum. It means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He'd already endured hours of torture, humiliation. People were mocking him, but the day was not done. While he was on the cross, it would continue. Let's look at verse 38. Two rebels, two other criminals, sentenced to death. They were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down off that cross if you're the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. They took time out of their day to come and mock him on the cross. He saved others, others they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insult on him. So if, if being tortured and nailed to a cross was enough, literally everyone around takes time out of their day to come and make it worse. Even the two criminals were not subjected to the same torture and verbal attacks that Jesus was. It sounds weird to say this, but even when it comes to being nailed to a cross, crucified Jesus had it worse than convicted criminals. They had it better. Now let's look closely with the people, including the religious leaders, they shouted at him. They said, you said you were going to rebuild the temple. You said you're the son of God. You saved other people. We saw you do this. You said you're the Messiah, but here you're dying next to criminals. This shows that they knew him. They heard what he said. They saw him do these things, and yet they wanted to make his suffering worse. Jesus wasn't being crucified as a stranger that nobody knew. They knew him. They heard his message. And yet they wanted to make this as difficult as possible. Verses 45 and 46. From noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. 
At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The length of time that Jesus was on the cross was probably from about 9 a.m. to about three in the afternoon, about six hours. And it says at noon, halfway through, darkness came over the land, and it stayed that way for another three hours. As Jesus, as he, as he ends the, nears the end of his life, he cries out finally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the word forsake means to abandon. Now what we should note about Jesus crying out now is how that stands in contrast to how he endured everything. Jesus had been betrayed by Judas, but he didn't get mad and lose his cool. Peter denied ever knowing him. All the other disciples abandoned him, left him in the Garden of Eden, but he didn't get mad and lose his cool. He was given a, a crown of thorns, and they took a stick, a large stick, and they beat it into him repeatedly. And the skin on his back ripped and torn off. He was forced to carry his cross, and when he couldn't carry the cross, he was too weak, someone else carried it for him, but that didn't break him. What caused him to break? Why now? What was going on? It was actually, it was the thing that he actually asked to be taken away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus was arrested, if you remember, he had prayed in the garden. And what he said was, he said, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And what he meant was, if there's any other way to do this, if there's any other way, I'm for it. But if not, I will do this. If there's no other way. He said, I will drink this cup. What he was talking about with this cup was two things. There's two things he needed to do to pay our debt. We know about the first one, and that was he was tortured and crucified to die on a cross, to die for sins he didn't commit. The second thing was due to him becoming sin for us, taking it all on, God the Father would abandon him. So at the worst possible time, while Jesus was near death on the cross for sins he didn't commit, the one last shred of hope and light left him. And he cried out. He cried out. And for a moment at that time, Jesus was alone. Being abandoned was what caused him to cry out. Now the text tells us the people near him, they heard him. They heard him say this. This was their response, verses 47 and 49. When some of those standing near him heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, someone ran off. They grabbed a sponge. They filled it with wine, vinegar. They put it on the staff, and they tried to offer it to him. Then the rest of them said, no, 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 no. Leave him alone. Let's see what happens. What this tells us is no matter what Jesus went through, there were people who misunderstood him and treated him as a spectacle. Let's just watch. Let's see what happens. The very last words of Jesus, as right before he died, were recorded in the book of John, chapter 19, and this is what he said. Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and it says he gave up his spirit. The Greek word for finished is tetelestē, which just means, it means paid in full. With his last breath, he declared to the world and to God, that his job was complete. He became sin, he endured suffering, he endured torture, he died, he was abandoned by God. But the debt of sin was paid. And at this point, at this point is where he gives up his spirit. 
Now it should be noted, no one took his life from him. He gave it up willingly. He endured it willingly. And when the debt was paid, he said, it's done. And at that point, he let go of his spirit. Jesus talked about this. He talked about it beforehand in John, verse, John chapter 10, verse 18. He's talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up again. And this command I received from my Father. So Jesus knew what was coming beforehand. He knew the suffering he would endure. He knew how he would be treated, how he would be tortured, crucified. People would mock him and make fun of him. He knew God the Father was going to abandon him. So the question is, why would he do that? Why would he put himself through this? But it's a question each one of us need to ask here tonight, and we need to understand the answer. Because it matters. Jesus Christ died for us. He chose that. He chose to die in our place because he wants us to be saved. He wants our sins to be forgiven and washed away. He loves each one of us more than we could ever imagine. So this is going to sound strange, but for a moment, I just look around the room, look at each other, look in the eyes of other people all across the Every person here, every person you see is loved by Jesus more than you could comprehend. And that includes yourself. Jesus was thinking of you when he refused the sponge. He was thinking of you when he was carrying the wooden cross, the beam. Jesus dying for us is the greatest act of love this world has known. So please understand tonight, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what's on your heart or whatever is weighing you down, there is one who loves you and died for you, and that is Jesus Christ. You are saved because of him. And in this church, in this church, our sole mission is to make sure his name is known and to save as many as people as possible. People like you and people like me. So tonight on Good Friday, what we want you to do is reflect on what Jesus did. We want you to know what happened. We want you to remember his sacrifice. Cherish what he did. And then follow him the rest of your life. So tonight, if there's anybody here who has not asked Jesus into their heart, we truly invite you to do that. If anyone here has thought about it, you've just never taken those steps, tonight, do that. In a moment, we're going to pray... And it's not going to be just any prayer. The prayer that we're going to say can change lives. It can bring hope, forgiveness, and salvation. It doesn't happen because of my power. I have no power. It happens because of Jesus Christ and his power. All you have to do is ask him into your heart. He is the one who will save you. And when we pray, what I say, all you have to do is repeat the words quietly to yourself. Whatever you say is between you and God. And if you've said those words before, but because of what Jesus did on this night 2,000 years ago, if you want to say him again, then do it. You can ask Jesus into your heart. You can rededicate your life. You can refocus on him as many times as you need throughout your life. I do it too. Tonight is about Jesus Christ and what he did. Let's say a prayer. Father, tonight we, re we remember what Jesus did on the cross. We remember the painful cup he drank from to save each one of us. Father, tonight, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. 
I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, I ask Jesus to come into my life. I ask him to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and then guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, tonight we also, we pray for strength. May everything that we go through, both good and bad, may it strengthen our faith, may it strengthen our resolve, and may we always lean on you. Father, tonight we also recommit ourselves to you. Many times in life, we get pulled away, we fall out of sync with you, but tonight we make a choice to recommit to you. It's our choice, and we choose you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and place a trust in you. It's only through the saving grace of your son, Jesus, that we have hoped. It's only because of him that we're saved. And Father, we pray that as each one of our faith grows, that you will use us as you see fit. Use this church to expand your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We are blessed beyond measure. Most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, we ask all these things. Amen.